Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Hosea, Love's Addiction, Part 1. Making our way through the Old Testament. We graduated out of Daniel and didn't say everything that there is to say in Daniel because we're trying our best to stick to the highlights. That highlight reel is there for a reason. Uh, and the highlights take us on to the book of Hosea. So go to Daniel and make a right. And just to the right of, Hose of Daniel is the book of Hosea. Uh, a few years ago, neuroscientist by the name of Lucy Brown and her research team began to distribute flyers in the greater New York City area, mainly the college campuses. And uh, what they were trying to do is they were trying to recruit people to come and have their brain scanned, basically. Uh, do what, what they called a brain imaging study. But they were looking for a particular group, and this is what the flyer said. They were trying to recruit people who agreed or who fell into this category. The flyer said, quote, have you just been rejected in love and can't let go? If you have, then we want you to report at so-and-so building. We were going to pay you a certain amount of money if you'll undergo this brain imaging scan uh, thing. We're trying to collect data. We're trying to, you know, these collect data for different things of brain imaging and the requirement was is first of all you had to have loved lost in love right and been rejected and can't let go and then when you come you had to bring a picture of the one that you lost even though you burned them all you got to find one on your phone or something I don't know bring it with you and so they said in some cases they even had the you know the both exes were together you know they were not together but they came separately but they were both lost in love you know kind of thing it was really interesting but they got many many responses to this as you can imagine off college campuses the very interesting thing they found about their brain imaging study was that the brain images they got from these people that had lost in love were almost identical to the brain images get this of those who were suffering the pains of addiction in particular they said the one that was almost, you couldn't tell the difference between a person who had lost in love and a person who was addicted to cocaine. Isn't that interesting? Could not tell the difference. Both were addicted, right? Both were heartbroken, right? He said, we begin to analyze and think, how could this be possible? I mean, we don't consider one to be addiction, the other one to be sort of a, I don't know what else we, we would call someone who's lost in love. He said, no, no, it works the same way you think about it. They constantly are thinking of the one that they've lost, whether it's the drug or the person. They are willing to do dangerous stuff to get it back. They don't sleep. They don't eat. They suffer the destruction of their stuff, even their own body, in order to get this. They said, in every way, it's an addiction. We're going to be looking today at, uh, if you will, an addiction, a person, I would say, who was definitely addicted uh, to the wrong stuff, uh, a guy by the name of Hosea. Open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea is a, um, a man who, talk about the addiction of love, this prophet suffered greatly from it. From him... From him, the whole point of the book of Hosea is not Hosea and the fact that he had a rough life and he had a rough marriage and he had to raise kids that he weren't, wasn't sure who, that whether they were his or not, which was all 100% true. But from him, here's the whole point of the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea and his situation is set in front of us because he is a living example or a physical example of the experience that God has in his love relationship to Israel. In fact, the whole point of the Hosea is that Hosea was, as we're going to see, was to go out and take this wayward wife, knowing that she was that way, going to experience the difficulties and trials that were going to come as a result of this. And, and the whole point was that we were going to be able to see in that process what God's experience was like 
in his relationship with this dysfunctional, adulterous, uh, uh, spiritually adulterous woman, otherwise known as Israel, otherwise known as sinner, sinner. So it begs this question in my mind immediately. Of course, Hosea is, has the addiction of love. So, so does God have an addiction? I would submit to you that he does. In fact, I would submit to you it's a raging addiction. What, 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 what do we consider to be addictions? Let's consider some of the, let's, let's examine God's addiction to us sinners and see how it compares to addiction in general. You might think it's a bit over the top to say God is an addiction. So let me ask you something. Has it caused him heartache? Oh boy, right? Ha, has, has it caused him sorrow? Of course, these aren't the only things that make, oh, well, you've got an addiction if you have sorrow. Well, no, not necessarily. But it certainly does that, doesn't it? Has it caused the destruction of his stuff? Oh, globally. Has, if he sleeps, has it caused sleepless nights? For sure. If he did sleep, it certainly has he experienced the, the extremes of emotion that come as a result of being attached to something that is effectively no good for you? Oh, yeah. Has he experienced rejection in that process? Tremendous. Has he experienced homelessness? He comes in the person of his son. What did Jesus say when he was asked, where are you going? He says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Has it cost him poverty, the loss of his goods? So the son of man leaves his glory in heaven that he had with the father forever and ever. And he comes to the earth to become one of us and is born in a stable to a impoverished couple and laid in a feed trough. Don't tell me he's not addicted, guys. He's desperately addicted to us. He really is. So as, as his counselor, should we counsel him to break his addiction? Wouldn't be in our best interest, would it? Get rid of those sinners, God, as long as you're not one of those. Get rid of it, drop it, right? Well, we're going to see the picture of maybe a hard picture, understanding the heart and the motives and the will of our God as he's addicted to those who have done him no good. So, so when you get to heaven, God's going to be like, I'm so glad you're here because things have been terrible up here until you got here. No, he's addicted to worthless stuff. Sorry. That's what sinners are. Worthless. No good. Done him nothing. Somehow, though, his heart comes out to us, but we... We are, and we are incredibly indebted to the addiction of love that God has for us. So let's give a proper induction, introduction to Hosea. Hosea is a, a very important book. I say that to say this, it's called a minor prophet. He's called a minor prophet, so we kind of categorize him. It's a very unfortunate rendering. The Bible does not in any way call them major and minor, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But let's first of all just consider his name. The name Hosea, you're familiar with the name, not just because it's a book in the Bible, but also because it is the same name as another book in the Bible. Did you know that? The book of Joshua, the book of Hosea are the exact same names with different vowel pointings. Hebrew language is only consonants. The vowels mean almost nothing. So I can change the vowels around and give you a different sounding name, but sound meant nothing to them. Meaning meant everything to them. The name Hosea, the name Joshua, and by the way, the name Jesus all mean the exact same thing. Isn't that interesting? You can take that for what it's worth. 
Major and minor prophets. So we, we entered a division now. We've been now for a couple of years in the major prophets, the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. In the last several months, we've been in the book of Daniel. These are called the quote-unquote major prophets. And then we have from this point on, Hosea through the end of the, the, the Old Testament, we have what's called the minor prophets. And, and I don't like that designation. I don't like it for a number of reasons. First of all, it, these were never designated that way when these books were nothing but the Jewish books. And when I say that to say the Old Testament is a Jewish book. They wrote it. They maintained it. It existed for 400-something years before ever a pen was laid down in the New Testament to write anything in the New Testament. It was a complete entity in every way, and they did not separate them into major and minor. They basically had to separate them into chronological order, which I would suggest to you is far better. So they didn't designate it that way. I'm thinking since they didn't do it, why should we, since it's their book? The second reason why I don't like it is because the designation makes it sound like one of the groups is more important than the other. So I got major prophets and minor prophets. I just need to do the majors, and the minors, well, we'll just let them be minor. Well, that would be a mistake. Let's understand it this way. All these guys, in, in baseball terms, all these guys batted in the majors, all of them. All of them, no matter which prophet you come across, all of them, when they got up to the plate, they hit it out of the park. Some of them, though, got up to the plate more often than the others. That's all you've got here is the difference between an Isaiah 60-something chapters and a Hosea 14 chapters. So there's not a major and a minor in the sense of importance, in the, in the sense of their capabilities. One doesn't have a better word than the other has a better word, just that some say more words than others, which, by the way, brings us to the next problem I have with it. The designation makes us think that all of these minors are all smaller than the majors, and in some ways that is true. But on the other hand, I have the book of Daniel, which is considered a major prophet, which only has 12 chapters. And I have the book of Hosea right after, which has 14 chapters. The book of Zechariah, which also has 14 chapters. So you can see how these designations are sort of just arbitrary. And they cause arbitrary problems. Like I said, for instance, some, some people say the reason why we separate these two into major and minor is for the sake of learning, you know, and so that we can have a process and learning of the, of the ones that wrote a lot and the ones that didn't write, write as much and... I would say it goes against learning, but because these are written chronologically. So if we take them chronologically, Hosea writes before Daniel does, even though it shows up differently in your Bible, right? He writes before Jeremiah does. He writes before Ezekiel does. He, writes, he, he lives and writes at the same time as Isaiah, so his books should be together in my mind. By the way, he also writes and lives at the same time as Isaiah, as Joel, and as Micah. These guys should be... I think should be put together in our scripture. You read the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and that's the way they are. But we've divided them into weird ways. And again, not to say that your Bible is wrong in any way. The words are all the same. It's just that we've organized them in a way that I think is sort of arbitrary. So Hosea is a very important book, and more important than his organization and where he is and whether he's a major or a minor or any of that stuff, is the message that's communicated in Hosea. Hosea is given an excruciating assignment. And I've already said, told you what that is. That he is to go and love, court, date, and marry a practicing, known, public servant, if you will, called a prostitute. That's what his assignment from God. This wasn't something he did on his own. This wasn't a plan that he had. He goes out and he, uh, he marries by the command of God, and it is a command. Notice what it says there in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, it said, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, sounds like command to me, does it? Take to yourself a wife of harlotry. 
So it's a command of God. He wasn't like, you know, if you get a chance, if you think about it, I'm going to put about 15 women out there for you to choose. No. Go, take, he says. Go. So by the command of God, this guy goes and takes to himself a harlot as a wife. So Hosea, you need to know this. Like I said, he is, he's a major player. He hits it out of the park every single time. He's going to be, so far at least, He's going to be a major preacher and a major teacher and a major influencer in Israel, except his seminary training is not going to be conventional. He's not going to be going to school to learn how to be a great preacher. His schooling is going to come based upon who he marries. Anybody here married a lady and you really got yourself an education? I'm one of those. Great education. I've been married 29 years, coming on 30. Great education. I'm a different guy altogether because of who I'm Ladies, you can say the same thing. Well, his education is going to be so that he can speak to a wayward, adulterous people. God is in a relationship with a wayward, adulterous, sinful nation of people. And the way he's going to be educated and enabled, if you will, to be able to speak to them is that he's going to go out literally and get himself the same kind of wife. The same kind of relationship. So he's going to be struggling for his entire dysfunctional family life in the same dysfunctional way that God struggles with his own people. Not only does he have an adulterous wife, but as we're going to see, he's going to be uncertain as to the paternity of his children from here on. She's sleeping around. So is this my kid? Is this someone else's kid? They don't know. And in fact, the indications are going to be, as we're going to see, that more than half of these kids are most likely not his. So he goes and does what God tells him to do, pretty smart. He marries her, and let's watch and see what happens beginning in verse 3. It says in verse 3, it says, So he went and took Gomer. Now, so he could have gotten a, you know, Diana, I don't know. I can't help, but as soon as I hear the word Gomer, I think, Shazam. I don't know about y'all. Uh, you know, Gomer Pyle, uh, some of you are not old enough to know what that is. And watch Andy Griffith's show, you're going to be okay. <laughs> Shazam. Well, he goes and marries Gomer. Now, Gomer sounds like an ugly name, a homely name in our language. It does not sound that way in Hebrew. Well, we don't hear Hebrew, but it sounds beautiful in that language. So she doesn't have a beautiful, I mean, she has a beautiful name, but nothing else about her is that way. Daughter of Diblaim, so she's of a well-known man, she's the daughter of. And she conceived and noticed, bore him Put a little underline on that. A son. Because she's going to bear two more kids in this chapter, and it's never going to say those words ever again about the children that she bears. It's going to say she bears children, but they're never, it's not going to say again that they're his. Like I said, all indications are, like, there's, no, there's no genetic test back then, but I'm thinking God knows whose kids is what, and I think God gives us the very clear directive here by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures that say, you know what, they're not his. So, so he gives a, she gives birth to this son, and God tells Hosea to name this son and the other two children these particular names, and these particular names are a sign to the nation of Israel. 
The whole relationship, the whole marriage is assigned to Israel. Hosea is playing the place of God, and this adulterous wife is playing the place of Israel, and the children are the children of Israel, and how God struggles, and like I said, in this dysfunctional relationship, and yet nonetheless, he's addicted in love to this woman that he loves in the same way that Hosea is addicted to this wife. He's going to keep going back to her and back to her and back to her, and finally, in chapter 3, he's going to be buying her off an auction block because she's going to become nothing more than just a typical slave. Yet nonetheless, has God not redeemed us through his son, bought us through his son, Jesus? It's the picture, you see. This man's name is effectively Jesus. Hosea, Joshua, Jesus, they all mean exactly the same. If you heard Hebrew, you you would hear their names saying the same thing. So he goes on and he names the child according to what God tells him to name him. And notice what he names him. It says in verse 4, the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. No, that sounds better than Gomer to me doesn't sound bad. It's, it's, it's Jezreel is re- with reference to a plot of land. It's basically the bed, bra- bed brass, the bread basket of the nation of Israel at the time that Hosea writes this. It's still the bread basket of the nation of Israel today. It doesn't sound bad. It sounds like a beautiful place. Sounds like a glorious garden or something like that. And in every way it is that, except for the fact that that was not what the people would hear when they heard the name Jezreel. What if, what if, um, what if I told you that I had a son and I named him Armageddon? What would you think of that? How's, how's that child going to turn out? I mean, he's going to have black fingernail polish and black lipstick and wear black. I mean, for his whole life. I mean, how, you got to be a, some kind of, I don't know, acid rocker or something if you're going to name. I mean, you're kind of setting the tone, right? Well, here's what you need to know. The Valley of Jezreel and the Valley of Armageddon are the same place. By the way, and in the ears of the people back then, they didn't call it Armageddon, they called it Jezreel, but it had the same ring. Because notice what it keep reading there, what happened in Jezreel. Name him Jezreel, why? Because for yet a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. There was a huge massacre in which this man Jehu killed a countless number of Jews. It was considered a place of blood. A place of, of incredible massacre. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel in verse 5. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So was, even though it may sound to us like a nice name, it was definitely not. So what a thing to name a child, right? Well, that was the responsibility of Hosea as he and his family played out this imagery of what Israel was to him. So he names this one. It would be the same today as a Jew naming their son Auschwitz place of horrible slaughter of the Jews, right? It's the same, it's the same ring that they had back then when they heard that you're dangerous on what? I can't believe that. So keep looking. Verse six, they have another child, a daughter. Then notice she conceived again and gave birth. Notice it doesn't say anything about bearing it to him because it's not. She's out there earning extra money, let's just say. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter and the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah. Now, you thought Jezreel was an ugly name? Not near as ugly as this one. This, one mean, this name means no pity. This is my son, Auschwitz, and this is my daughter, no pity or no kindness. Who names their kids that, right? Only a prophet of God, hopefully. Not loved or have without compassion. As many, there's several different ways you can interpret her name. He says, you're to name her this, notice, Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. So he says, it's gonna look, here's what it's going to happen. What's going to happen is it's going to look like I've disowned Israel. Like I don't have compassion for them. 
But the underlying current here is, but nonetheless, I still do. It's going to look like I don't love them, but in fact, I'm addicted to them. I love them, but I'm not going to quit them. It's going to, it's going to tell us that. Verse 7, for I will, notice, have compassion. It's going to look like I don't have compassion. You can call them that, but what's going to really happen is, in the long run, I am going to have compassion on the house of Judah, and I'm going to deliver them by the hand of the Lord their God, and I will not deliver them by a bow or sword or battle, horses or horsemen. And then we have another child here in verse 8. Verse 9, when she had weaned lo Ruhamah, she she conceived and gave birth to a son. So now we have two boys and a girl, right? The Lord said, name him Lo-Ami. Now you first thought Jezreel was not a good name, and it wasn't. You thought Lo-Ruhamah was not a nice name to not be pitied. Well, how about to have a child and you name him not my kid? This is Auschwitz and, (laughs) how crazy is this? One who's not loved and this one's name is not my kid. Can you imagine that? In East Texas, my brother was having a conversation. He's a pastor over there. You know, there's, I mean, we're all fine, educated people over here. Nothing but rednecks over there. This man, he was introducing himself, and they was three or four kids were running around. And my brother said, oh, you have a lot of children. He says, all, all, um, them ain't all my kids, he said. He said, that one's my kid and that one, but those two are not my kids. Now, they live in my house, and they're my, daughter, they're my wife's kids. But that one right there, we don't know where his daddy is. But that one right there, his daddy pays, he said. Every month he pays faithfully. My brother said, the conversations you have with people. Very interesting. So, so to say in front of your kid, that one's not mine, and give them a name like that, that's exactly, that's exactly what's happening here. So, Wow. Who does that? Well, only by the direction of God. Notice, they will not be my people and I'm not their God, verse 10. Yet notice, notice God's addicted because he comes right back, verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. He is going to have them, you see. No, he doesn't need them. They're horrible to him. He should cut them off. He should kill them. And yet, see, God only has one problem. And we've said this many times. And the problem is, is that God loves sinners. If God did not love sinners, then all this shenanigans would be over. It would be all cut and dry. All those sinners, all sinners would be in hell. All perfectly righteous people, which is exactly zero, would be in heaven. We would go back to the original state of things in which God and the angels were having a good time for all eternity. And we'd get rid of all of humanity because all of humanity is nothing but sinners. It'd be over with. We wouldn't have this all this play between why is a, a, a sinner allowed to live and yet nonetheless God still loves us. You see, because of this addiction, God keeps coming back and coming back because his heart is not to give us what we actually deserve. His heart is to redeem. His heart is to make better. His heart, by the way, Hosea is going to get his wife back. He's going to have to buy her back, like I said, off an auction block. They are going to have a good marriage somewhere much later on. But it's going to play out all just the way God's relationship to his church plays out. So Hosea comes to know how God feels and acts by his own experience He comes to understand the dysfunction of of the experience that God has with a sinful nation in the same way that the dysfunction that he has with this sinful wife and kids he's not even sure who's his. This didn't have to be that way. 
doesn't have to be that whole long drawn out issue of will she come back and will we love each other and will it work because, because um, it could have been just simply cut and dry because consider what this says, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife and one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, then both the adulterer, the man, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's pretty straight, isn't it? So, she runs out on you one time by the law of God. You take her down to the courthouse. You get the guy she commits adultery with. Everybody gets stones and you execute them. Could have been over. Hosea's life, I would suggest to you, the heartbreak would have been over, right? I mean, okay, she's dead. I loved her, but you know, good riddance. Could have been over. But notice, God, there's none of that in here. And it's not that God doesn't know his law. So what God effectively is doing is saying, I don't want you to 100% apply my law. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that God would command Hosea to not keep his law as in, he told him to marry a prostitute, which was against the law, and not to put her to death when she commits adultery. So let me, let me ask you this, it begs this question. When, when is it, and hear, hear me carefully, when is it okay to break God's commandments? When is it okay? Never. It is never okay to break God's commandments. They're eternal laws based upon the nature of God. They're not just arbitrary rules that he sets out there and makes them where you can't keep them. No, they're based upon the heart of who God is. So when you break the laws of God, you're literally going against who God is personally. You're committing a crime against his person. So when is it ever okay to break God's laws? Never, unless, in the case of Hosea, and by the way, you're not Hosea. God tells you to. Don't tell me God's telling you to break his laws. You, I want to see your prophecy then. I want to see your book in the Bible. You don't have those. But it begs the question, here's the question that I want us to really answer together. Does God keep his laws? So God has laws, but he doesn't run by them. It's sort of like the kings of the old. You know, They set the laws and make the people follow them, but they themselves don't keep them. Is that true for God? Let me hear, hear me start clearly on this. God is certainly no lawbreaker. But does he, the question... Does he enforce the law to the letter? And I got a very easy answer for that question. No, he does not. He does not enforce the law of the letter, and how do we know that? Because we are still alive. Because I want you to know what the law says. The law has no mercy. The law has no grace. The law has no forgiveness for those who break it. The commands of God are immutable. They're absolute. There's no mercy and grace built into them. Look at what it says. Cursed is the, anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Anybody ever broken the laws of God? What does it tell you about you? The people say all the time, you can't condemn sinners. Guys, they're already condemned. They're already condemned. It's, it wouldn't be fair to not tell them. Cursed is everyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. The person, notice, according to Ezekiel 18, the person who sins will die. So why aren't you dead? Because God, not because the laws have moved, because God has not enforced them to the letter, I would say, not yet. Why? Because he's addicted to you. 
You see, if there was no love, if there was no mercy, if there was no grace, if it wasn't this longing, this craving to have you as his, then off with your heads. Off with all our heads. But he's not holding to the letter of his law. Everyone who commits a sin also breaks the law, and sin is the breaking of the law. For whoever keeps the whole law, James, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. So you may not have known how sinful you really are. You really are. God's laws are absolute. And he is, his enforcing them will be absolute. But he's not doing that right now because why? Because he's addicted to us in love. He much would rather not be the judge who carries these things out. Instead, he'd be the lover that welcomes us in, that cleanses us, that, that fixes us, that makes us better. And the story of Hosea, as he continues to reach out to this adulterous wife, he's going to get her back. Just like God's going to get his back. He's not gonna, his love is going to be returned. It's going to be. Because either the law is powerful, the law is eternal, the law is unbreakable, the law is, is immutable. But there is something greater than the law. Watch. James, mercy triumphs over it. Because God isn't just a lawgiver. He is a lawgiver, but he isn't just a lawgiver. Because he's a person who loves, who has grace and mercy. You and I are still alive. You and I can have a hope of heaven. You and I can know that God, the one who has made these laws, has made a way in which those laws can be kept, and you and I can still go to heaven. And that is by sending his one and only son to die to pay the penalty for the laws that we broke. So by trusting him, placing our faith in him, God will consider our sins to be completely paid for. And we'd be accepted in heaven the same as his son. We have to place our faith in his son in order for that to be true. So he, so he comes to Hosea and he says, I want you to marry a prostitute. But when, you, when she's unfaithful to you, of course she's going to be because she was unfaithful before you met her. Then, then you're, you're going to do, you're not going to do the logical thing. The logical thing is to divorce her and have her killed. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that for the same reasons that I'm not doing that to Israel. That's the whole message of Hosea. That's the whole point. You know, we get so put out at God because God doesn't do what we want him to do. God doesn't come through for me. As if one of the biggest fallacies in the minds of Christians and of people everywhere as if God owes you anything good. As if. Because he does not. He is not beholding to you or indebted to you for anything good. He's indebted to you, not for that. He's indebted to you that way. He owes you death, he owes you a curse, and you're not getting it because he's restraining himself. Because he loves you. As if, but remember, James, again, such a straightforward guy, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So you ever been hostile towards God in that way? Hmm. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, not the right side to be on, I would suggest to you. You adulteresses, he says. Wow. But here is the love and mercy of God, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. What kind of love? 
a reciprocal kind of love, you know, 50-50. I got some things to give to you. You got some things to give to me. Together we come together and do better. No. Nothing to give him. Only heartache. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You're laying down everything for that which benefits you, at least to that point, none. That's an addiction, my friend. And boy, do you need to be grateful for that addiction. He's addicted to us. Tim Keller put it this way, and I want to conclude with this. Pastor Tim Keller, I think in New York City, I'm not sure well, he's a great guy. He's got some great one-liners. Here's what he said. He says, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. And he says, you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That is the gospel, to be sure. I'm going to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes as we consider the things that God has said to us this morning. God in his son Jesus has extended love to us, mercy and grace to us. We're we're so lied to by our sinful nature that we think somehow God is beholding to us. Like he, he did it because we deserved it. He did it because there was something redeemable in us. No, there's nothing redeemable in us. The only reason God did what he did is because he found the reason in himself. Because he's a God of love and mercy and kindness. And that's who he wants to be to us. Not a God of judgment. He doesn't want to be that. He will be. God will not keep his addiction forever. But for now, he holds out his arms to us. Saying, won't you come to me? Won't you accept my offer of peace through my son, Jesus Christ? I sent him to die to pay for your sins. To take your place. What, what he got on the cross is what was coming for you. He shed his blood so that a life could be demonstrated to be taken so that I don't have to take your life in payment for your sins. Won't you trust him? Won't you place your faith and your hope of eternity and and, and in uh, time and temporariness in him? God, I thank you for this great love addiction that you have for us. This great mercy that you desire to pour out on us. Forgive us, God, where we have seen you as something different. We see ourselves as somehow worthy of your love, and that's not true. Somehow you're beholding to us and that we deserve good from you, and that's not true. God, I thank you that apart from merit in any way, you've extended a hand of love for us, God, and you keep coming. Just like Hosea, you're going to keep coming, you're going to keep coming, you're going to keep coming to our dying day, Lord. I pray that we not wait until that day. They would say, today, God, I open myself up to you. Today, today I receive your love. Today, I accept your your pursuit of me. I thank you, God, that you are pursuing us and that you don't let up. God, we want to return your love in the same way. I know our relationship with you has not been beneficial, but I pray, God, that someday it would be. Someday we would love you in the same capacity, in the same level that you love us. We look forward. We look forward to that day. Thank you so much, God, that we have this time together. I pray, God, that as you're speaking to us, we will respond. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.